0: All right, welcome back to Bible Journey. Thanks for coming back, and uh, we are going to continue the story. Today we're talking about uh, the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, chapters 10 to 15. And um, we uh, finished up last week with the conversion of Saul, who is now going to be called Paul by his Roman name. And uh, we didn't quite have time for me to do an introduction Uh, to Paul. I want to tell you a few things about him, and I'm going to hope to get to that today. I'm going to hold it to the end because I want to make sure we cover all of the ground we need to cover in uh, chapters 10 through 15. So let's go ahead and get into it. And um, we, uh, we started, remember I told you that we were going to cover the book of Acts geographically. In uh, ever expanding concentric circles, right, starting from Ju- Jerusalem and then Judea and then beyond. So today we are going to the next couple of phases, and the first one is the gospel spreading out into Samaria and what I call the coastal region, um, which is uh, you know primarily Caesarea. Now, uh, last week I had this map, but you could not see where Caesarea was, so I thought I would make it obvious. There it is. So it's this little town right here. It's, uh, and we'll be looking at a picture of it again. So for those of you listening on the podcast, you'll just have to uh, Google Caesarea, click on images, and you'll, you'll see some stuff. All right. So, um, so we're looking at the gospel in Samaria and the coastal region. And the first story we get is the conversion of uh, the Roman soldier Cornelius and his household. Now, what's important about the Roman soldier, Cornelius, is that he's a Roman, meaning he's a Gentile. So we are seeing the gospel going out beyond the Jewish people, just as uh, promised all the way back in the original covenant, right? Um, that, uh, that, that through the people of Israel, all the nations would be blessed. So Cornelius and his household are Gentiles. And we have this wonderful vision or dream or whatever it is that Peter has of all of this food coming down on a sheet. And, but it's all food that would be considered unclean by the, uh, by the Old Testament dietary laws. So, I don't know what, bats and camels and snakes and lizards. It sounds good. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but Peter's really hungry. So, I mean, for me, I'd have to be really hungry. But... Um, the point here is that it is now okay for him to eat this stuff. Why is that important? Because he's going to be going to the home of a Gentile where they will put who knows what in front of him. How many people here like lobster? Yeah, not kosher, right? You want lobster? You need uh, you need the new covenant for lobster. Um, I'm not a big fan personally, but that's just me. So, uh we get this sort of new commandment, in a sense, uh, that, that goes like this. What God has called clean, you must not call unclean. What God has called clean, you must not call unclean. And the food thing is really only the beginning, because, yes, the, the new rule applies to food, so that now when Peter goes into the home of a Gentile, he can eat with them and receive their hospitality. But it's not really just about the food, is it? It's really about people. Those whom God has called clean, you must not call unclean. So the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. I think we can apply that rule even more broadly than the gospel as well, as I'm sure you understand. Um, but notice the interesting thing here. Well, one of the many interesting things about this story is that uh, you know, we, we're so used to thinking of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles But it isn't Paul who first brings the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, technically it isn't even really Peter. I mean, it's God. It's the Holy Spirit. But um, it is through the ministry of Peter, not Paul, that we see uh, the initiative of the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Um, So what's the significance of the mission to the Gentiles? Well, I mean, on some level it's obvious to all of us because probably almost everyone here is of Gentile descent, right? So, thankfully, the gospel came to us as well. But, um, but there's, a, there's a theological significance behind that as well, as the practical significance of just the gospel spreading. The theological significance is that, um, and I, I think I hinted at this last week, that, that Christianity is doing something that's relatively new in the world. And that is that it is going to be a religion not by birth or ethnicity, but a religion by choice. So membership in the Christian community, membership in the the body of Christ, the, the group of people who call themselves followers of Christ, that membership is by choice and by personal commitment, not by birth. So there's an affirmation here of free will. And part of what it means for us to be made in the image of God is that we are rational beings who have free will. And God expects us to use our God-given gift of reason, and, and God gives us the gift of free will as as well. So um, to follow or not to follow is a choice that we have. God's people, and the people whom God wants, I think, are those people who want to be God's people. Now having said that, though, before we start to think of this too much in a kind of individualistic way, um, personal sense, remember that Cornelius's household is said to have been converted. So again, this is not entirely an individualistic faith. This is still a faith of community. It may not be a faith of a nation, but it's a faith of community in the sense that um, you know it's not just me and Jesus with my eyes closed, but it's about community. And in this sense, it's about family. And so clearly, the household of Cornelius would be the extended household. And um, apparently they were converted to the faith together and baptized together. And this presumably would have included uh, children as well. So um, so what we want to point out here is that with the gospel going out to the Gentiles, God has opened up access to the divine, to, to himself, to all people. Um And, you know, last week when we were talking about this, it may have sounded a bit exclusivist in the sense that, you know, um, only Christians have access to God. And you do sort of get that vibe from some of the from some of the text in the New Testament. Um, But the point is, it's actually very inclusive because everyone is invited to be a Christian. Right. That's the point. Um, And that's actually rare for religions in the ancient world. Many religions in the ancient world were, um, were, were about separating people or segregating people or us versus them, our nation versus their nation, our God versus their God. Or within even the Roman context, many religions separated people by ethnic group, by economic status, by sex. I mean, some cults were only open to men. Uh, Some cults were only open to the wealthy, etc. And um, that's not what Christianity is going to be about. Christianity is going to be a, a religion where access to the divine is available to all and where those boundaries are broken down. Now, notice though, that when I say the Holy Spirit is available to all, there doesn't seem to be a set order or a a set way that this happens. Some people receive the Holy Spirit before baptism, and then it's almost as though the apostles are like, well, I guess we've got to baptize these people now, right? Other times it's the other way around. They receive baptism, and then through baptism receive the Holy Spirit. Um, But normally, the reception of the Holy Spirit is associated with baptism. Uh, We just have to be careful that we don't Make it like a you know a magic trick or a legalistic kind of um, you know uh, cause and effect thing because I think what we're reading in the book of Acts is that that God moves where God wants to move and uh, we can't necessarily you know assume that it's always one way or the other. Um, Another point here, and I alluded to it a second ago, is that uh, you know. Those of us who are Roman Catholics, or whether we're, um, you know, Lutheran or Methodist or any number of other denominations, we baptize infants, and we treat the faith, the way it's treated here in this passage, as a family faith and a community faith, and so there are those traditions that that criticize us for baptizing infants, and they. I believe, go a little bit more to the extreme of making it a very individualistic faith based on a personal decision. And so the argument is if you're not old enough to make that personal decision, um, then you, you should not be baptized. We don't go down that road. We say that it is possible for a family to make a faith commitment on behalf of its even its infants. Now, of course, the assumption is that, you know, This is why we separate baptism and confirmation and we leave confirmation for later and we hope that the individual will make the commitment for him or herself. But the point is is that here we see in the book of Acts that families are baptized, which says to me that infant baptism is a valid form of baptism and uh, it is a valid expression of the faith because, after all, um, the faith is lived out in community, in families, in parishes, in community. All right, so we've got this going on. We've got the gospel spreading to the Gentiles, and Gentiles are being baptized. And already, right from the beginning, we have opposition. Um, we uh, find out about this group called the Circumcision Party. Is it called that in your in your translation? The <laughs> Circumcision Party. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go out to vote on November 6th... (laughs) Alright, that's a bad joke. But anyway, you get... (laughs) By the way, this is Caesarea again, that aerial shot of what it looks like now. You can see that that some of this stuff was built out by the Romans to create a harbor for the Roman boats. This is the only place, really, that they could get their big Roman boats in. um, And so they they had to build it up and create it. And um, you notice who it's named after, right? That's not subtle. Right? <laughs> it's named after Caesar. Um, okay, so, uh, so what's at stake here, though? What, what is this circumcision party all about? What is their beef with you know, baptizing Gentiles? Well, they are, as we find out, um, strict Jewish believers, probably Pharisees, very much like Paul was, who believe and taught that you know to to follow God, one had to follow all of the Jewish laws, and so their attitude would have been, well, okay. Um, if you want to be, uh, if you want to talk about being Christian and being a follower of Christ, you want to talk about Christ as the Messiah. That's fine, but don't abandon your Judaism to do it. And so ultimately, what they're saying is, is that if Gentiles want to get on board with this christianity thing that's fine but they have to become jews to do it so not very much different than um than if they were to become jews even without christ and so um so obviously you know one of the things that would have been required is for men circumcision and of course you know you can see that the that that paul from the beginning is going to see this as a deterrent to his missionary efforts Fair enough, okay, but there's, there's even more at stake here than that. It isn't simply that it's going to be a deterrent to evangelization because the bigger issue here is actually the food thing because if you strictly follow the Jewish dietary laws, that means that Jews and Gentiles really can't eat together. If they can't eat together, that means they cannot sit down and share the Eucharist together. So how can you have one church, one faith, one baptism, one Eucharist when you have a separated Jewish church and Gentile church that can't eat together? And so the very unity of this new movement that's going to be called Christianity, the very unity of the church is at stake here. So... Um, From Samaria and the coastal region, then we are moving outward to um, the gospel in Antioch and Asia Minor. Now, unfortunately, I thought this map was going to be easier to see on the screen, but I guess I was wrong. Um, So, I'll show you the big picture again in a little bit. But here's Antioch. You saw this picture uh, last week. Obviously, this is kind of what it looks like now. Um, This is the Antioch in Pisidia. This is the Antioch in Syria. Thanks for asking. Uh, there's two Antiochs, but as well get that out in the open right up front. Sorry, folks, I didn't make this up, but there are two Antiochs. Now, um, actually, you know what? Let's go ahead and go to the uh, end of the story here and look at the map. Here's here's the Roman Empire in red, and here is uh, sort of you know Judea, Samaria. This is the Roman what will be a, a colony called uh, Palestina, Palestine. This is what we call Asia Minor. It is now what we call Turkey. Within Asia Minor, there is a colony called Asia, but then there are other uh, there are other regions: Galatia, Cappadocia, Cilicia, uh, Phrygia. So this is Syria here, and Syrian Antioch, the one we're talking about first, is right in the corner here on the coast. That's that's when I, whenever I just say Antioch. With no qualifier, that's the one I'm talking about. And this is the one that will become the headquarters of the mission to the Gentiles. The city in Antioch is in Asia Minor. So, <clears throat> Okay, so uh, we start out in Antioch in Syria. And Antioch, as I said, becomes the headquarters for the mission to the Gentiles. Um, and so you could kind of say that the first two Archdioceses, I never know how to say that word. Uh, The the first two um, metropolitan uh, church areas would be Jerusalem and Antioch. Jerusalem, uh, traditionally, the first bishop of Jerusalem is James, not the James who was the apostle, not any of the Jameses, but James, the one who is called the brother of the Lord. And. you know, we know that you can interpret that term brother more broadly, so that you know, there's different theories. He was the half-brother of Jesus as a uh, son of Joseph from a previous marriage, or he's a cousin of Jesus who grew up in the same household. There are various ways to interpret this. It doesn't really matter. The point is he's a relative of Jesus who apparently was not on board with Jesus' ministry at the beginning, but only came on board after the resurrection. At any rate, he becomes the leader of the church. The first, you know, I'm putting bishop in air quotes for those of you listening at home, because again, the office of bishop, as we know it, doesn't quite exist yet. But he's considered an apostle, and he becomes the first bishop of the Church of Jerusalem. So, when the so-called circumcision party are called in the in the letters, they're called certain men from James. It means they come from the Church of Jerusalem. It does not necessarily mean they have the authority of James. It just means they come from Jerusalem. So James sort of represents Jerusalem. Now, Antioch actually claims Peter as its first uh, honorary bishop. But as you know, so does Rome. Peter is, is traditionally considered the first bishop of Rome as well, but also Antioch. So, um, you know, we don't know all the details of how that would have played out. And uh, in, in many ways, it's, a, it's an honorary title as much as anything else. But clearly, Peter was in Antioch. And clearly, as, since he was Peter, he would be sort of by default assumed to have a level of authority over uh, other Christians there. It's in Antioch that we first hear that the followers of Jesus or followers of the way come to be called Christians. And later, we're going to actually read um, a, uh, some letters by a later bishop of Antioch, Ignatius of Antioch, who makes the point, yeah, it, it's, it was here in this city where we were first called Christians, and at that time, it was an insult. It started out as an insult. In other words, it's a way of saying, oh, you, to, to, to call someone a Christian is, is like to say, well, you're the servant of a dead man. That was the insult. At least that's how people thought it was an insult. But the Christians took it and said, yes, we are Christians. Not only in the sense of being followers of Christ, but in the sense of being sort of anointed ones. In other words, if Christ means the anointed one, capital A, capital O, the anointed one, to be a Christian is to be a little Christ, to be an anointed one. Anointed in the sense of as his follower having received the Holy Spirit, anointed with the Holy Spirit, but also literally anointed in baptism. So, all of these things come together and the Christians, as they are now called, accept that name and embrace it. Um, But, we can see that um, as time goes by, the criticism from the more conservative Jewish believers, both within and outside of the church, is leading to persecution of the early Christians. And the persecution is getting worse. Now, the persecution isn't coming from the Romans yet. We'll talk about that later. Except to the extent that the, that the Jews are able to get the Romans to do what they want. But, um, but, but Romans still don't quite understand what Christianity is. To, to them, Christianity is a sect within Judaism And any dispute between Jews and Christians is infighting among the Jews, as far as the Romans are concerned. So, um, at any rate, persecution is getting worse, and we read of the second martyr of the church that we know of. This time it is James the Apostle. Not the same James that is the Bishop of uh, Jerusalem. This time it is James the Apostle. remember he's the one that was the brother of John and together they were called the sons of thunder remember that one so this is James Thunderson um, <laughs> that's now his last name he becomes the second martyr that we know of and uh, he was he was killed you know we're, we're right around 44 AD or CE now um, and then Peter is imprisoned and he is released from prison miraculously. And I want to show you a picture here. This is actually from Rome. This is in the church of uh, San Pietro in Vincoli, uh, which means St. Peter in chains. And these are the chains of Peter. Now, there's a great story behind this. Um, The story is that the chains that held the Apostle Peter in Jerusalem were saved. And... When Peter was then in Rome and later arrested in Rome, the chains that held Peter in Rome were saved, and were venerated as a relic. And then, when one of the um, one, one of the empresses of the later empire uh, went to Jerusalem, she acquired the chains of Peter in Jerusalem and brought them to Rome. And in the fifth century, the two sets of chains were brought together and miraculously linked. And so, what you see here is, according to legend, both sets of chains linked and held in a a reliquary in the Church of San Pietro in Vincoli. Now, um, you know, my own personal theory is that the legend is the result of somebody had a set of chains. But they couldn't decide whether it was the chains from Jerusalem or the chains from Rome. You know. um, now, having said that, it is not impossible that the chains that held Peter in Rome could have been saved. And if that's possible, it is possible that, uh, that, that we have them. At any rate, they, uh, you, my, you know, I'll take just a second. When I take groups to Rome, you know, we, we see a lot of relics some of them have a higher probability of being real than others, as I'm sure you understand. Um, and I'm not going to speculate on the probability percentage on the chains of Peter. But I, I, you know, I always tell people, you know, I don't want you to abandon any kind of healthy skepticism, but at the same time, I, I do want you to approach these relics uh, and these, these artifacts as a kind of icon, a window into the world of the spiritual and the world of the divine. Um, so I don't care whether you believe these are the chains of Peter or not. Um, what, I, what, I wouldn't want you to, what I wouldn't want anyone to do is make them an end in and of themselves. You know, relics are never meant to be the object of worship. They're not an end in themselves. They're a means to an end. And they're a means to the end of um, greater devotion to Christ. And so if, uh, if any relic or any icon um, facilitates that for you, then it's all good. But anyway, I, uh, I thought it would be fun to show you that. So Peter is um, miraculously released from prison. And uh, he, when he gets out, he goes to Mark's house. Now we meet John Mark, or Mark who is called John. And this is probably another case where a person has a, a Jewish name and a Roman name. John would be the Jewish name. Mark or Marcus would be the Roman name, just like Saul and Paul. This is, he's called John and Mark. But this is the Mark who is, according to tradition, the one who wrote the first gospel. Uh, not, well, the first gospel in the sense that it was written first. It's the second one in your Bible, right? You get the idea. Um, so, right, not the John gospel, the Mark gospel. Thank you, yes. I want to clarify it, so Matthew Mark. now remember, the gospel texts themselves don't include the names, so the names are attached by tradition, although the tradition is very old and I think somewhat reliable. Um, so I always argue for a more traditional authorship, I think this guy actually did write that gospel, and he actually did get a lot of his information from peter that's the, that's the tradition. but again, you know if, uh, if that's not exactly how it happened that doesn't make the gospel any less reliable. The gospel itself doesn't have a name on it uh, in its manuscript. So anyway, that's the the tradition, that this is the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark, and he is clearly a friend of Peter, because when Peter gets out of prison, he goes right to Mark's house. And and then from here, we switch to Paul. Paul. And the rest of the book of Acts is going to be mostly about the ministry of Paul. And so we find in this section what we call Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, Paul's travels are usually uh, divided into three intentional missionary journeys, and then a fourth journey, sort of against his will, uh, when he's taken to Rome as a prisoner. And so we see Paul's first missionary journey. This map—I know it's a bit confusing with all the lines. This has all of his journeys, but um, the one we're looking at right now is the blue line, and you can see it starts here in Antioch, and he travels around, bounces around here, and then back to Antioch. So that is his—that's uh, his path. And so Paul preaches in, uh, well, this. Oh, by the way, this is. Um, This is the church of San Paolo, or St. Paul's, in Rome. Just like there's St. Peter's in the Vatican, this is St. Paul's. And I just want to show you that because uh, there's this great statue of Paul in front of the church. And notice he's holding a sword. That sword symbolizes two things. One, the double-bladed sword of the Word of God. It symbolizes Paul's contribution to the Scriptures, our New Testament. It also symbolizes how he died. So, spoiler alert, in case you didn't see this coming. Um, although it's not mentioned in the Book of Acts, we'll, we will get there. All right. So, uh, Cyprus, and again, these are just pictures of uh, you know what these places look like now, obviously, because um, they didn't have digital cameras in Paul's time. There's uh, some ruins in Cyprus. Perga, more ruins in Perga. Now, Pisidian Antioch. Okay, so as we said, there's another Antioch, right? It's in uh, it's in Asia Minor, and it is here, right in the middle. So he's he's gone from Antioch to Perga. Well, it's to Cyprus, Perga, up to Pisidian Antioch, and. Um, I didn't find any good pictures of the way it looks now, but I found an interesting recreation of what the forum of Pisidian Antioch would have looked like back in the day. Uh, and so, you know, imagine Paul speaking out in the open in a place like this kind of a public square. That would be a pagan temple there. Here's a painting of Paul preaching in Pisidian Antioch. Um, from there, he goes to Iconium and then Lystra. Here's a painting of him preaching in Lystra, uh, Derby, and Italia, and back to um, back to Antioch. And as, as part of his first journey, we learn that he is stoned and left for dead. And so again, we're seeing the persecution heating up, and we're seeing that the very Mission of evangelization is dangerous. These apostles are taking their lives into their hands. So, um, is this my last picture? Yes, it is. Okay. So the last thing we get then in this section is the so-called Jerusalem Council. The first council of the church held in Jerusalem. This is about the year 50. And... Um, I'll just say that, you know, meanwhile, according to tradition, though it's not recorded in the book of Acts, according to tradition, Peter has made his way to Rome. So, um, again, you know, Peter has this traditional honorary title as the first bishop of Rome. And so, according to the tradition, Peter has made his way to Rome, but he comes... To Jerusalem to be at this Jerusalem Council. Now I'll just say that you know when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, there's no hint in the letter to the Romans that Peter's been to Rome yet. But the tradition is that that uh, Peter got to Rome in around the year 42 or, or thereabouts, while uh, while Paul was doing his missionary thing. So at any rate, uh, the apostles come back together in Jerusalem for the first council of the church. And what's the council about? Well, councils are always called to deal with a controversy, answer a question, or solve a problem. In this case, this is the question um, that, is, uh, that is called by the circumcision party. By the way, I'm going to start referring to the circumcision party by the name I prefer. We usually call them Judaizers. They are the Judaizers. In other words, they are the ones who advocate um, f- you know, following the full Jewish law in order to call oneself a Christian. So, um, so we call them Judaizers. That's what we call them. And, and this is going to factor in later when we start talking about the early heresies in the church because the early church fathers attributed one of the early heresies of the church to the Judaizers. And while we don't quite see that in the text... Um, you know, we'll see it later when we get there. So just keep that in mind. Anyway, so you know, the question is this, right? The question is, you know, first of all, the question is, are Gentiles even worthy of God's mercy? Are Gentiles even worthy of the gospel? And um, and I think the apostles would answer, would say, well, you just answered your own question because it is not about being worthy; it's about God's mercy, and so you know as we said now god's mercy and the availability of reconciliation with god is being opened up to all people not only the uh, the jewish people so the compromise then would be for the, for the judaizers to say well okay we'll give you that but they have to be jews if they want to be christians they have to be they have to become Full Jews and follow the full Jewish law, which of course for the men would include being circumcised. Um, and, and it's in this context that we find out that, this, you know, that, that these Judaizers are actually Pharisees who, or, or at least are led by them. Pharisees, remember, are experts in the Jewish law. And you can imagine that you know, Pharisees are thinking, okay, I'm an expert in the Jewish law. This is my job. You take that away, what am I going to do? Right? So there may have been some fear there that that uh, they would become irrelevant if everybody abandoned the Jewish law. The interesting thing about that is, is that after the temple will be destroyed in the year 70, eventually the priesthood phases out because no temple, no need for a priesthood. So it will be the Pharisees who will take over the leadership of Jewish religion and in place of the sacrifices will be the law and so so in a way both Jews and Christians are going to follow the word of God the Jews will be led by the Pharisees who emphasize the Torah the written word of God Christians will be followers of Jesus whom we believe to be the living word of God Right in the beginning was the word so um, so the, the, these Pharisees are the ones who will become the rabbis, the leaders of the post-Temple Jewish faith. But already we can see the conflict between following the law and trusting in God's mercy, law and grace. And we see this in Paul's writings because Paul is going to be on the forefront of this controversy, especially uh, in like, his letter to the Romans. But what you have to remember, and I know you've probably many of you have had this conversation with your um, Protestant friends, relatives, co-workers, et cetera, this this conversation about um, works versus not works and and you know um, sometimes Protestants have this idea that that Catholic faith is, is has too much of an emphasis on works, and they will. Um, they will point to Paul and say, well, look, you know, Paul was against works. What you have to remember is that the context in which Paul wrote those things is this very argument over, you know, following all of the Jewish laws. And so when Paul says, you know, it's, it's grace over law, it's the spirit over the letter, things like that, he's talking about, um, he's justifying not making all Christians follow all of the Jewish law. So, um, remember that that's the context that 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 argument is taking place in. Now, the interesting thing is, and sometimes it's easy to pass this over, um, we assume that, you know, in the context of this council meeting, there was a lot of debating and arguing and scripture quoting and things like that. But at the end of the day, did you notice that the decision is up to James? I wanted to see where they took a vote. I didn't see that anywhere in the text. The decision is up to James. He is the bishop of Jerusalem. And again, even though the office of bishop as we know it didn't quite exist yet, he is the apostle in charge in that place. And apparently, even though Peter and Paul are right there, interesting. His decision is that the Gentiles will not be required to be circumcised. And... A letter is written, an Episcopal letter is written uh, from, the church of Antio- uh, from the Church of Jerusalem to be taken to the Church of Antioch. Because again, both of these archdioceses have to be on the same page because if we're not, then we don't have one church anymore. So, we're not going to follow all of the rules of um, of Judaism. However, there are still some rules. It's not like all rules are out. And the rules that are still there are things like, you know, don't eat the meat with the blood in it and stuff like that. And and these seem like dietary laws, like we're keeping some of the dietary laws. But what's really going on here is this. Um, It's one thing to say we don't have to follow all of the old Jewish laws. It's another thing to say that it's okay to do what the pagans do. So what, what they're saying is we don't have to follow all the old Jewish laws, but at the same time, it's not okay to participate in the pagan banquets and to eat meat that you know, may have been sacrificed to idols and to, uh, to do anything that would be participating in idolatry. So that's what's going on there. So that's the first council of the church as far as we know. And from there, we see the apostles spread out again. And when we, uh, when we get into our next section, we're going to look at Paul's continuing uh, missions. As they prepare to go out again, there's apparently some falling out. Paul has some falling out with Barnabas over John Mark. John Mark, apparently in the first missionary journey, had, um, had, had left the team, and Paul didn't want to take him along. Barnabas did. And so they split into two teams. Barnabas takes Mark, and Paul takes Silas. And the two teams set out for a second journey separately. I just want to point out, you know, notice here, Silas is listed or, or is described as a prophet of the church. And if you look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he lists all the spiritual gifts, I think it's 1 Corinthians 12, He lists all of these spiritual gifts, including prophecy. And many of these things become almost like offices or ministries within the early church. But the one that doesn't end up becoming an office or a ministry in the early church eventually is prophecy. Here it seems to be. Here he seems to be, uh, Silas seems to be described as a prophet in the sense that this is his role in the church. Like as if you were going to say someone's a Eucharistic minister or a deacon, or an acolyte, or an usher. He's a prophet. Very interesting. And yet that doesn't stick. And there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, Prophecy as as a ministry or as an office of the church is going to be phased out, in part because of some prophetic groups that come along that pose a threat, or at least appear to pose a threat to the developing hierarchy of the church. We'll look at that when we get into the second century. Um, and so, anyway, eventually, prophecy, as such, really becomes a part of the overall ministry of preaching, which will eventually be uh, reserved for the clergy. So, prophecy is, you know, is 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 done from the pulpit, so to speak. Um, but at any rate, I just wanted to point that out. It's very interesting that Silas is described as a prophet of the church. Now. Um, That covers our section. We have a few minutes left, and I want to just say a few things about the Apostle Paul, because we um, find out some things from him, from some of his own letters, that we don't find out from the book of Acts. And I'm going to throw a couple things at you for the next few minutes. Um, But I want to tell you this, that as you are reading through these sections of the book of Acts... I'm going to be telling you which letters Paul wrote during the time when he was on these missionary journeys. So, for example, in his first missionary journey, um, you know, he may go to some places, and then later he may write letters back to those places. So, for example, um, when, we, when you read about the, you know, the next phase of his um, journeys that's when he will write the two letters to the Thessalonian Christians, to the city of Thessalonica. Now notice, it doesn't mean he's in Thessalonica, he's somewhere else, but he's writing to them. So if you have time, I'm going to encourage you to read First and Second Thessalonians during, while you're also reading about what else Paul was doing when he wrote those letters. And so we'll touch on some of the contents of the letters so that by the time we finish the book of Acts, I'll also have given you an overview of Paul's letters as well. So, um, I'll, I'll mention that. So we, we have this character who becomes larger than life in the early church. He starts out as Saul, his Jewish name, but we will know him as Paul, his Roman name, and um, he has not only a Roman name, but he has Roman citizenship. And as we'll find out, this is... This is what entitles him to a trial in Rome, and this is what brings him to Rome. Um, but we, we know that he is from the city of Tarsus, T-A-R-S-U-S, which is a kind of a university town in the uh, province of Cilicia, which is here. So if you're looking at the map, Antioch in Syria is here in the corner. Right around the corner is Tarsus. That's where Paul is from. He uh, was raised, though, and schooled in Jerusalem under the rabbi Gamaliel. And uh, remember back in chapter 5, Gamaliel was the one who counseled against persecuting the early Christians. Because he said, wait a minute, if this is not of God, it'll fizzle out on its own. But if this is of God, we don't want to be against it because then we'll be against God. That was Gamaliel. That was Paul's teacher and mentor. But Paul is not going to take his advice at first, right? He is going to persecute the church, but then, uh, as you know, be converted and become one of its most famous evangelists. Um, Paul goes into uh, more detail and and almost gives us his resume in the letter to the Galatians. Uh, By the way, Galatia is, is this area here. When he writes to the Galatians, um, he's going to be dealing with that controversy that is still ongoing with the Judaizers, and it's almost as if the Galatians had said, "Well, Paul, these guys claim to be from Jerusalem. Why should we listen to you?" And so he tells them why, and he gives them his credentials. He is trained as a Pharisee, and he is um, has a perfect pedigree as a faithful Jew. He's always followed the law, etc. So he gives us this. This is in the letter to the Galatians. And uh, so his, his orthodoxy as a Jew is impeccable. And yet, now he's preaching what seems to be something new. Is that a question there? Question. How does a, Jew, a Jewish family attain Roman citizenship? Excellent question. How does a Jewish family get Roman citizenship? We're not entirely sure. Um, I have a personal theory Remember that Paul's trade is as a tent maker. Roman legions need a lot of tents. So my own theory is that it's possible that Paul's family, not Paul himself, but his family a generation or two before him, had some role in providing tents for the Roman legions and were rewarded with citizenship. That is just a theory. It's an educated guess. It's entirely speculation. But it gives you the idea of the kind of thing that might get you Roman citizenship. After the year 212, in the year 212, everybody's got Roman citizenship because that's how they decide to collect more taxes. But before the year 212, yeah, uh, Roman citizenship is a, is a big deal. It's a privilege, and it's, it's granted usually as a reward from the highest levels of government. And so someone with Rome... Now, of course, if, you, you know, if you're born in Rome, then you have Roman citizenship. But outside of Rome, it's, it's rare. It's a privilege. And if you have it, it entitles you to... If you're on trial for your life, you can't be executed without facing the emperor first. So that's what uh, what gets Paul transported to Rome. Um. So you know, Paul goes from this guy who holds the coats of the people stoning Stephen to the early church's you know twelfth apostle. Because even though Matthias is elected as the twelfth apostle, you know, you go to Rome and you look at all the churches that have twelve statues lining the you know the nave. It's Paul, not Matthias. Poor Matthias gets left out. So um, so you know, how does this happen? And and really, I think you know we talk about. Paul's conversion and that may be a word that's, that's not really the best word to use because when we hear the word conversion we think of it as going from one religion to another um, or at least maybe from one denomination to another and I don't think Paul would see it that way I think he would see it as a fulfillment of what you know, he was born into and always meant to end up with um, his enthusiasm for God never changes he goes from the enthusiastic persecutor to the enthusiastic evangelist. Um, and so, you know, uh, he, he really sees this as just the continuation of his Orthodox Jewish faith. Yeah, question here. Do we have an idea of how old Paul was at the time of his conversion? Um, you know, I don't think we do. The question was do we have an idea of how old Paul was at this time? Um, I don't know uh, of any place where uh, we have any hint. Of when he was born, so um, I, I would I date his conversion in 33 which is early for a lot of people, but you know that 's one way to do the math of how things work out later um, but again, we don 't know when he was born, so uh, we assume he might have been a little bit older than Jesus, for example, but uh, it 's not clear it 's not clear. Um, Okay, well, I'm going to uh, stop there and we'll continue, some, we'll continue with some of that later. But I'll just end by saying this, and then we've got a couple of announcements, uh, so don't run away yet. I'll just end by saying this. When push comes to shove, Paul rests his authority as an apostle on his experience on the road to Damascus. So in other words, the word apostle means someone who is sent out, presumably by Jesus. So if someone were to say to Paul, how can you call yourself an apostle? You didn't know Jesus during his ministry. Paul's answer would be, ah, but I met him on the road to Damascus and it was from there that he sent me out as an apostle. Alright, so uh, I'm going to stop the thing now and then we'll uh, have a couple of announcements. Thanks for joining us, uh, those of you listening on the podcast and we'll see you next week.